Out Loud from the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at Arizona State University. I'm Heather Ross. Together with Andrew Maynard, we bring you conversations with experts on and off campus where we think out loud about our collective future. In today's episode, Andrew and I were joined by one of our favorite podcast guests, Adam Dupay, our cybersecurity colleague. Adam actually came to us, as he will explain in the podcast, with an idea to talk about research ethics in cybersecurity that he had while he was listening to one of our other episodes about uh, research ethics with wearable devices and challenges with IRBs, and that was Camille Nebaker from the CORE Project at the University of California in San Diego. So we had actually a really, really interesting conversation with Adam. We identified that there are a number of questions that are becoming increasingly important to deal with and maybe need for some structure in this space. So I hope that you enjoy this episode as much as Andrew and I enjoyed talking to Adam. This was, I have to admit, the first time that one of our podcast guests has come with an agenda of items to talk about during a podcast episode. And uh, we loved it. We had a really, really great time. As always, before we dig into this episode or jump in, um, please tell your friends about the Future Out Loud podcast. If you're not already subscribed in a place like iTunes or SoundCloud, definitely encourage you to do that and would be grateful for your uh, review and to rate us in those places. Uh, we do love hearing from you. You can tweet at us. We are at Future Out Loud. You can also uh, talk to us on our Facebook page at Future Out Loud. As always, thank you very much for listening and hope you like Adam Dupay once again. Hi, Adam. Hi. Hi, Andrew. Hi. So, Adam, you are a self-generating fount of podcasting goodness. You know what my trick is? What is it? I listen to the Future Out Loud podcast. Oh, I, that's a good trick. it generates new ideas. Brownie so points. I yeah, love exactly. it. I love it. Thank you. <laughs> and is this your fourth time? I don't. I, at this point, you stop keeping track, and you just want to keep coming back. Although, it, it, it actually, do I get a free one? I, I was going to say, it just feels so. like I'm in a repeating loop. I mean, every time I come, you're sitting here. <laughs> <laughs> So Adam, you had an idea. Yes. So I was listening to the podcast with Camille Neviker uh-huh. uh, from UC San Diego. The Core Project. And, yes, and talking about the Core Project, and that got me thinking about the ethics of research broadly, and uh-huh. specifically in my area of cybersecurity research. Oh, and we don't been, think about ethics of cybersecurity research, do we? No, and that's actually it's one of the things that you know we're such a new community that we've kind of struggled with this understanding of what is ethical cybersecurity research mm-hmm. what what types of things can we do and what types of things can we publish and it's mm-hmm. starting to get the the feeling from being on program committees and talking to people is it's now we're actually starting to take this seriously oh. um, and, and just to be really clear mm-hmm. this is the ethics around how you do the research to generate new insights rather than the ethics of cybersecurity Correct. More yes. about, so we want to, so I have some some topics I want to talk about, but very broadly, so it's we want to, let's say, even something that seems very 
benign in my mind of, hey, we want to study and try to understand how many, let's say, websites are vulnerable to cross-site scripting vulnerabilities, mm -hmm. right? This can help because we need uh, measurement studies so that we can understand where the problems are so that we can spend our resources solving common impactful problems, mm -hmm. right? I don't really care about solving a vulnerability that only affects 0.0001% right. websites, right. Stuff, yes. I would rather yeah. focus my attention on the big things, exactly. It's so interesting that you say that because in, you know, in healthcare, we often make major policy decisions based on interventions that are statistically significant because they improve at a rate of 0. 0.0001%. <laughs> right. But there's a p-value right. of so less than 0. 0.05 there. The, the, the so, yes, yeah. the, the, the sometimes fallacy of p-values. Yes. Right, exactly. So how encouraging to hear that cybersecurity is thinking more on the sort of clinically relevant. Uh, I think it's, it's we're starting to. I think a lot of okay. people, when you look at, there's a lot of different type of cybersecurity research. There's research into attacks, right? So mm -hmm. how can we make these attacks better? And there's uh, research into defenses, right? How can we build up technical defenses so that bad guys can't do what they want to do? Yep. Right. Uh, and then the third category, really broadly, is measurement, mm -hmm. right? And I, I know some people in the community who kind of look down on measurement studies. Uh, but I do find, and I think the community is finding, that these are very valuable because they can help us target where we want to focus our efforts. And, and okay. just explain what you mean by a measurement study in this context. So a measurement study it is it would be trying to understand and measure some aspect of, usually the internet, um, the internet as a whole, how much of the internet is vulnerable to X. Right. Or, okay. for instance, we have, you know, and it's in all types of areas, so there's HTTPS certificates. So how many people are doing this correctly, right? And how many bad HTTPS okay. certificates are there? Yes. Uh -huh. uh, there's a you know wide range of possible things that can be measured. Right. And so it's so really important research. I, I was going to say, I, to my mind, that then begins to give you a handle on, on system-wide vulnerabilities. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. And if you don't have that, then you don't know, well, okay, so where should, as a researcher, I spend my limited time finding vulnerabilities right. or solving problems when you build right. defenses? Do you build defenses for the most popular thing or the 10th most popular thing. Right, yes. Right, yes. and it also has to do with impact, how impactful are these mm -hmm. vulnerabilities, what's the downside if somebody gets attacked. Some of them are fairly right. trivial right. as right. opposed to other ones which can leak your entire data. So, so that's the, the nature of the problem you're looking at. Yes. Where did the ethics come in? So presumably it's a good thing actually researching these things. Yes, mm -hmm. so it, it is. Um, so we can, we can start with that one because I think that segues pretty nicely. So the key question is, okay, you're a researcher, or I'm a researcher. We're all I have found, <laughs> or I want to study and try to ask the research question, well, how prevalent is vulnerability X on the web at large? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How many, you know, how many websites are vulnerable to this vulnerability, mm -hmm. right? So how do you, how do you do that? How do you test that? Right? Oh. It'd be like, if you think about it in the physical world, the analogy would be, how many houses, uh, how many people leave their house, their front doors unlocked? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. So how would you do that study? Well, you could survey people and ask them, do you lock your front door when you leave? Mm -hmm. I'm sure most <laughs> people would say yes. Right, right, yeah. right. right. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to admit that they leave their front door unlocked. Right. You could go around town and Actually start trying to turn doors, doors. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then you also get into ethical issues, right? What if you, what if the door opens? What if right. the door's yeah. already open when you walk up there and you see something you shouldn't Right. What do you do? Do you, do you walk mm -hmm. away and leave it open? Exactly. Yeah. Do you tell somebody? Yes. yes. Uh -huh. <laughs> and so, yeah, so that's a similar thing that we struggle with there, right? It's an important 
question to ask. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But then, you know, how do you actually do this in a way that, so the, the main principle in my mind is you also want to cause no harm, mm. mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Because yep. you never know what's going to happen to that other website you're scanning, uh-huh. right? To try to find vulnerabilities. So yep. the easiest way is try to devise some tests that you can send some data to the website and be able to tell if it was vulnerable or not. Mm-hmm. So you can perturb it in some way, in exactly. some active way, rather than just passively scanning the whole. Exactly. Project. So passively scanning mm-hmm. is oftentimes difficult mm-hmm. because vulnerabilities don't manifest themselves right, unless right. there's some at, like they will throw an error when mm-hmm. you give specific input and that will give you a sign that yes this website has this vulnerability because if it was coded correctly it would not give this error message okay yes. but and that leads to the the ethical dilemma of mm-hmm. what if you know what if you are doing and you have to do this automated right because mm-hmm. we have to we're talking about trying to scan millions if not okay, billions right. of right, websites right. and so you know, it's not a human doing this because mm-hmm. if you have a human doing it, maybe they can have some discretion about what they're going to do. Sure. Right, right. And so, do you do you create this program that goes around, crawls every website, and tries to essentially mm-hmm. trigger a vulnerability? Yep. Right. Because the downside there is, well, then what if you're so if you're successful and nothing happens to the website, it's fine. Mm-hmm. Right. The case that you're always worried about in ethics is what's the worst case scenario. Mm-hmm. Well, the worst case scenario is you somehow take down this website. Mm. Okay. Right. So is that a possibility by probing? It depends. And okay. that's 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 right. where it gets very technical and it depends on exactly which vulnerability you're testing okay, for. Right, right. Because yes, it 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 can it could be the case that if you think of it like a uh, like a queue, and if there's bad data coming in the queue, and it, yeah. it never exits the mm-hmm. queue, and the mm-hmm. website just keeps crashing because it's trying to process this data, even though you've moved on. So, so this may be an extreme analogy, but but how close is this to the human analogy of trying to find out how many people have got immunity to a virus by exposing the whole, whole population to a virus and seeing how many sure. people get sick? So yes. that, I was thinking of another human-related analogy, mm-hmm. because we do like analogies here. Um, this seems, feels to me, similar to when we would do full-body CT scans to see what's happening in there, it's right? It's a fishing expedition. It's a yeah. fishing expedition, and we find what we call in medicine incidentalomas. That, you know, what <laughs> right. happens when you find um, some strange tangle of blood vessels in the brain mm-hmm. that clearly shouldn't be there, but you would never know about had you not done this full body scan as part of some overpriced executive physical, <laughs> you know? Um, and actually, the pres- we were just talking about the the President's Commission on Bioethics, mm-hmm. right? And this was part of, like, what do you do when you uncover an incidentaloma in the context of some other research project or some mm. other, you know, clinical exercise? So, so a question immediately pops mm-hmm. into my mind here. So we have human ethic, ethics, medical mm-hmm. ethics, we have environmental ethics. Mm-hmm. Is there actually an area of study of cyber ethics? Probably. I am not familiar with it. And whoa, whoa, whoa. You are part of that community. So if yes. there is, well, if there is and you're not familiar with it, if, if, if there is, it's not having much interest. I, I'm, yeah, thinking, yeah. Okay, I'm thinking very broadly of if, 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 like, do I know people that call themselves cybersecurity ethics uh-huh. researchers? Mm-hmm. No. Right. Not that I know of. Is there a code of ethics for cybersecurity researchers and or practitioners? Yes. So it's starting... To, uh, I don't know that there is an explicit uh, 
and that's what I mentioned at the beginning yeah. of that we are a new field. Uh -huh. But we are starting as a community to start to talk about these things, and I've seen papers rejected from conferences on ethical grounds. Mm -hmm. Really? Yeah. Yes, which is something that was basically unheard of. What 10 kind years of? Ago. Can you give us an example to wrap our heads around? So this actually this would be an example. So take mm -hmm. one vulnerability. So SQL injection is. It's not the most prevalent on the internet, it's two or three, but it is the most impactful. So with a SQL injection vulnerability, somebody can essentially steal all the data from your database, mm -hmm. they can inject data in your database, or completely wipe your database. Oh. And so this is how a lot of the big, uh, the target hack, uh, uh -huh. back uh -huh. uh, a while ago in 2008, no, yes. 2012, I think. It affected, I think, um, all of us in Yeah, this and TJ yeah. Maxx, there was TJ Maxx hacks back in 2009. Mm -hmm. All of these started with SQL injection vulnerabilities okay. that allowed a bad guy to extract all the data in their database, which included customer names, right. uh, mm -hmm, credit mm -hmm, card numbers. Mm -hmm. So it's an incredibly serious vulnerability, and despite decades of research, it's still very prevalent. Okay. Right. So it may be interesting to ask the question, how many websites are vulnerable to SQL injection? Uh -huh. Right? And but so, how do you test that? And how do you test that, right? And in my mind, you don't know what this data can do, especially with, particularly with SQL injection, because you don't know where this data is going to go. You don't know if it's going to be part of the application and continually crash it later. Um, and so t in my mind, if somebody did this study of going out scanning all websites for SQL injection mm -hmm. vulnerabilities, I would be very tempted to try to reject it on ethical grounds, especially if they had no ethical right. considerations mm -hmm. in the paper. Mm -hmm. um, and then that gets into the, well, do you get IRB approval, just to kind of yeah. you know, CYA. But How would an IRB cope with that, this question for such a new field? I know that I struggle with the IRB. So I, I don't with. think there's any category. Yeah. So in thinking about mm -hmm. the IRB process, first of all, there's the training, which is either right. working with animals or working with humans. Uh -huh. Nothing to do with working with exactly. computers. Exactly, and yeah, that's yeah, part yeah. of uh -huh. the other side's argument. That's right, and then uh -huh. when you put in the, um, the, the request, the, there is nothing outside those two domains. Right, right. Mm. Yeah, Tuskegee syphilis does not apply here. Right, but, and you're talking yeah. about systems, right? You're not talking about people. You know, hopefully right. you're not right. directly yes. you're not directly testing. Well, but people, if you're talking about corporation systems, then we're talking yes. about people. yes, people are definitely affected. Well, yeah, I think also yes, we treat why. corporations as people in this country. <laughs> right, so, maybe that's yeah. the loophole. Maybe <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so it's still right. something that we Big struggle questions. with. But I'll say like when I but it's it's such a critical part of research mm -hmm. that I've looked at other classes of vulnerabilities like mm -hmm. um, because part of what's interesting to me is looking at maybe older relatively unknown vulnerabilities and trying to say okay are these should these be unknown mm -hmm. or are should they be more well known because they're actually pretty serious vulnerabilities so right. I had a student identify an older class of vulnerabilities called email header injections mm -hmm. which essentially allows you to when a website creates an email mm -hmm. if while they're creating this email, they have this vulnerability. It allows the attacker to control who the email goes to, mm -hmm. the subject of the email, and the entire content of the email. Right. Oh. But it is sent from that website's email so server, you can so it seems exactly. Oh. So it seems like a legitimate email. Yep. Uh huh. Okay. And so technically, when looking at that, we look at okay, well, am I a huge hypocrite because I said you shouldn't be scanning the web mm -hmm, for SQL mm -hmm. injection vulnerabilities? But I did a study looking for uh, email header mm -hmm. injections. Right. And the way we justified that is a technical thing. We said, look, all we're injecting, you know, the, mm -hmm. the injection is new lines, which is mm -hmm. literally like when you press the enter key, 
you have a new line. Uh -huh. So that's what we're injecting into right. the web. And that's such a standard character. Uh -huh. In this context, it can cause a problem. But in other contexts, mm. it would not cause a problem. So, but what fascinates me, even the language here, the mm -hmm. language of injection, yeah. um, it brings up this really interesting metaphor with, with humans and the, and the human body, putting something yeah. into mm -hmm. the body mm -hmm. and seeing what it does. Yes. Yep, yeah. So most does most of your research require IRB or? This one you did not and doesn't because of the mm -hmm. argument of people. Actually, I have another topic we'll talk about in a second okay that, uh, does I love that you came with impact. an agenda this <laughs> yes. is super I've been we should about require this, for a while this since in all of our guests I listen to the podcast awesome. Um, awesome and so that's so yeah it's a tricky thing to try to balance and then the other side we didn't talk about uh, which I forgot is the upside right so mm -hmm. as part of this not only do we find out who's vulnerable but then we actively work to try to work with those people to fix them. So my student also, mm -hmm. so we found about 600 domains that were vulnerable, and uh -huh. my student went through, contacted everyone, explained to them what we found, and so that that way they could actually fix and overall improve and, the security. And so what were their responses like? Because, because I've had these emails for, for my website saying, we've done analysis, analysis of your website, we've found vulnerabilities, we can help you. Yeah, dot, that's dot, my dot. always. I'm yes. like, oh, clearly you're trying to sell me a thing. Yes. And probably it is virus laden, whatever you're trying to sell <laughs> right, me. Right, yeah. Right. So, yes, you have to be very up. So, one of the nice things as a researcher, right, mm -hmm. we, we have the academic benefit, right? So, we mm -hmm. send all the emails from our ASU accounts. We right, right. clearly state up yeah. front that we're academics. He's a master's student. I'm a mm -hmm. professor at ASU. Uh, and we, I try to get around this by giving right. as much inf all the information we can in an email so they don't need to click on anything uh -huh. or do anything okay. yep. um, but yeah it's you get all kinds of reactions you get people who thank you profusely and are mm -hmm. very happy that you found this because it made the, you know mm -hmm. it, it improved the security of their website and, and helps uh, make their users safe you get people who just ignore you that's mm -hmm. kind of the sure. standard especially even from the outside it's actually difficult to contact all of these people like how do you know who owns what domain right there's there are attempts to try to contact them but it's hard and it's hard to do it in an automated fashion mm -hmm. yes. um, you get people who yell at you mm -hmm. that happens a lot like what are you doing how dare you do this does that mean they type back at you in all caps sometimes yes. as we have uh, established in this White House administration that that is yelling everybody now knows right. that Yes. Yeah, so this is, and I had a lot of this uh, back in my PhD. I did a different kind of study, not actively, but with software I had downloaded to my local machine. I, I created a vulnerability analysis tool, ran it just on the code locally, so no external no, um, scanning. But I sent emails to these people to let them know. And I got people that straight denied that there could ever possibly, a pro like right. huge emails about denying I was so wrong. And I'm like, oh, maybe the tool made a mistake. Uh -huh. And I dig in and I'm like, oh no, this is actually vulnerable and yeah. you have a problem and you try to explain, but people, you know, you can't, you can't help everyone. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's yes. true. So that's yeah, true. even dealing, but you know, I think at, part of my responsibility is to take those steps, no matter right. if I will be heard or not. Yeah. So, but. To me, this is really interesting. So if you were developing an ethical study in a domain where you do this as a matter of course, mm -hmm. you would have built into that study what you do when you find out mm -hmm. certain yes, things yes. and how you would actually deal with uh, the community you're working with. So now what you're describing is exactly what you would find, say, in a biological or human health-based yes. 
study. Yes, and so that's that is something that as a broad security community we've tried to address and think about. The problem is there is no consensus. Right. So sure. right. where this really comes from is what they call a vulnerability disclosure. Mm -hmm. Right. So you find you worked really hard, you found some new unknown vulnerability in let's say Windows, mm -hmm. in the latest Windows 10 Windows, and it allows you to completely control the machine. Mm -hmm. um, the question now is, what do you do with that information? Right. Right? At this point, it, it's, it is information, and that's all that security vulnerabilities are. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. And so what is your responsibility? What, what Do you have any responsibility? I mean, that's, right. in my, my, well, I'll try to present everything. So there's multiple, because there's a couple ways to think about it. One way is what they call full disclosure. So mm -hmm. the idea is you email the entire world, essentially, right. telling them what you found. Right. Uh, the second way is, and it's a little bit, they've done very well in the branding of this, it's mm -hmm. called responsible disclosure, where you first oh. notify the company, mm -hmm. tell them, hey, I found this thing, mm -hmm. you work with them, and then when they've developed a fix that they can push you out to users, then, then you, you tell the world. Oh, yes. okay, okay. And, and so those are kind of the two extremes, right? Okay. And they have pros and cons. So on the full disclosure, the idea is, hey, if this vulnerability exists, it means that there are attackers out there using Already this vulnerability using yes. right now in the wild, yes. uh -huh. right? So the world deserves to know so that even if there's no fix from the vendor, you can put fixes and mitigations in mm -hmm. place in your network in order yes. to stop these, mm -hmm. yes. mm -hmm. right? The downside there is the bad guys also know now about this. So the guys who, people who, guys, general attackers can be men or women, mm -hmm. uh, they use this knowledge of this vulnerability and now they can go create malware that exploits this vulnerability yes. before there's a general patch available to right, everyone else. Right, right, right. Right, so then on the flip side, working with the company, what if it takes them four months, six months to develop it's, this mm -hmm. patch? Yes. Yeah. And yes. you know that, hey, I found this, I'm not the best person in the world, somebody else is bound to find it and be exploiting it, so now people could possibly be exploited in the, these six months that you have. Yeah, yeah. so both huh. of those, rest on this idea that if you find something there's a really high probability that somebody else has already found it yeah um that seems to me a reasonable assumption to me is there actually research on that i think somewhat but not that i'm i can't right. recall anything right off the bat Bec the, and the other thing is the third option right is right. you're a bad guy and so you either sell it to a mm -hmm, bad guy mm -hmm. uh, so you can sell, so if you have an, I know iPhone exploits sell for like $500,000 okay. on oh. the black market for a lot of money. Okay. Um, so you can sell it, you can sell it, and if you want to go as bad as you so want. So this is quite a lucrative sideline yes. for an well, assistant yeah. or an associate professor. <laughs> yes. That's right. Yes, yeah. who has a lot of free time to do <laughs> right. this. <laughs> right. Wow. Um, so yeah, so that's okay. one of the things that, you know, that you have to think about and we have seen a little bit of evidence of this whenever like a security company is breached and mm -hmm. some of these companies sell zero um, this is what this an unknown vulnerability is called a zero day vulnerability mm -hmm. uh -huh. so they sell these zero day vulnerabilities to various governments and other organizations sure. and we've seen that yes some of them were ones that have been found publicly right um, so there right. is okay. a there's indication of that there's i don't know about a systematic yes. study yeah. of that and in order to study that you would have to necessarily engage in deceit mm -hmm. by studying that on the dark web yes right which, which raises its own you ethical know ethical problem. questions That's right. yes yeah yes. yeah so this, I, as somebody that has just been on the periphery mm -hmm. of the, the whole cyber world, 
what fascinates me is increasingly we're building this environment which is just as real, just as vulnerable, just as important as the physical environments mm -hmm. that we're more used to, to working with. Mm -hmm. And it seems like I'm sure that this, this mental shift has already happened within the, the cyber community, but I think it has to be, happen much more widely, thinking about cyberspace as a really important mm -hmm. real space in yep. which we operate. And so with regard to research, you know, we have established systems that are certainly imperfect, but they are robust systems mm -hmm. to deal with human subjects research and animal research. How should we think about constructing a similar system for cyber and cybersecurity research? Um, clearly, the space is has some similarities to human the human world mm -hmm. but it also does not very different yeah. yeah so how does one i mean is this the purview of cybersecurity researchers who determines what is <laughs> are you, you know, going to have a meeting right? at Silima, for instance to come up with yeah. a set of guidelines yeah <laughs> I, I don't know but i think i think the you know part of when you look at this, the harm is not really evident, right? And I think that's yeah. part of the yes. problem, right? It's not mm -hmm. like we're locking people in a basement and shocking them or something, mm -hmm. right? I mean, we don't know that we're not. Well, but <laughs> I'm not. I can we confidently say We in this room, <laughs> I'm confident, and not only because we don't have basements in the Phoenix area, <laughs> <Right>. but <laughs> yeah, exactly, and that's um, and that's part of you know, I think that could be. Part of the reason why there's not a big outcry, mm -hmm. but it definitely is something that, as a community, we're thinking about more and more. I don't know what's going to be the thing that pushes us over the edge, right? If whether it's internal or external, that says, "Hey, you all really need to look at what you're doing mm -hmm. and come up with some guidelines that you can all abide by." And is it ethically sound to wait until you're at the edge as a research community before you I, I, the, instantiate? The, to something. me, that sounds very dangerous because yeah. things. So edges don't are, know where the edge is. That right. Yeah, where, the problem what is, is you the can't edge? see the terrain. Exactly. So exactly. Really, yes. I mean, it's like Tron, right? Like, what if the edge like comes and goes? Well, so I was thinking slightly more sophisticatedly that you're dealing with a complex <laughs> system mm. where one of the defining mm -hmm. features is everything looks completely okay until suddenly it's not, mm. and it's very yeah, very hard to yeah. identify that instability. Uh huh. Yeah, exactly. And there's you know, and there's a lot that we can learn about uh, underground economies and mm -hmm. malware and malicious software from doing types of studies. So there's another study I wanted to bring to you guys' attention that was really interesting. So I was a, back when I was doing my master's at UC Santa Barbara, I was a fly on the wall wall while this study was happening. So UC Santa Barbara, my advisors published this paper called Your Botnet is My Botnet. And okay. what they did was this was back, I believe, in 2009, and there was a bot. So, for those that don't know, a botnet is essentially a bad guy controlled group of computers. Mm -hmm. So, the attacker, however they've done it, has gotten some software to run on your computer, and now your computer is a zombie, which is now being controlled by the attacker. And right. typically, an unwitting zombie. Like exactly. you're continuing to use your computer right. normally. You don't completely unknown. You're just you have like, no idea. why is it running a little slow? And they don't slow? want. To, don't and they don't want to alert you even that it's doing anything. Right. right? They right. just want to do their malicious things in the background. Right. So, and the idea is by controlling a wide swath of computers, you now have access. You can send out spam emails. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You can try to launch denial of service attacks to websites. You can steal people's usernames and passwords. Mm -hmm. But one of the key technical challenges, challenges is, well, where do you get your commands from, mm -hmm. 
right? How does the individual zombie of this botnet know what it should do? Right. Okay. And so the bad guys come up with increasingly sophisticated what we call command and control infrastructures. Okay. So the idea is how do they connect, who do they connect to to try to get commands from? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to a fixed location, like let's say there's, even if that this location is hosted, let's say in some country where we don't have extradition mm-hmm. treaties with, uh, so we can never get these people, but if you're going to a fixed location, well, hey, I can just cut off in my sure. network all right. access to that location. Right. Very easy to get around. Mm-hmm. What these people did who ran this, what they call the Torpig botnet at the time, what they did was they had this very clever way of generating a random domain name every day, oh. and that is where all the bots, so each individual zombie bot in this botnet would connect would generate on its own this unique name Mm -hmm. and then they would all go contact the same name and then next day it'd be somebody completely different right and so now you can think about it yeah it's hopping all over the place yes what one of the researchers at santa barbara brett stone gross he found out that uh, the algorithm that it was using to generate these domain names mm-hmm. was predictable. Okay. And so oh. he went and bought 10 days worth of domain names <laughs> oh. before the bad guys did. Because, you know, you're a bad guy. Why would right. you invest this money in right. advance to lay sure. down for two, 20 domain names? Right, that? right. And then, so now they're in this situation where now they're getting all of the data that every single zombie in this botnet is sending. <sighs> yes. Oh. So now we get into some very interesting ethical dilemmas, yeah. right? So the first thing is, what would you, what, what do you do with all this? So the data composed of username and passwords for mm-hmm. all types of websites, right. banking websites, PayPal Ooh. websites, everything. Yep. Full uh, user, you know, first names, last name, address, social security numbers, mm-hmm. uh, mother's maiden you name. You get all this, yes. You're getting mm-hmm. all of this information, um, plus. You know, you also could have the ability to send maybe commands back right. to have it do stuff. Yep. Mm. So what do you do? Yeah. <laughs> wow. what did they do? Yeah, what's so it? what they did is they the first thing they did was talk to the FBI. So they have okay. connections with the Good FBI. Plan. Yeah. And so by working with them, they were able to securely give the data that they were getting from them to the FBI mm-hmm. and so that the FBI could contact the companies and that they could alert their customers that they were vulnerable. So mm-hmm. that was uh, one thing that they did. The other thing that they really struggled with is, as a researcher, you want to learn, you know, this is a kind of a once in a lifetime opportunity. Mm-hmm. So you want to learn as much as you can about this botnet, mm-hmm. right? And so some of the questions you want to know is, what, where are these zombies? Who mm-hmm. are these computers that are mm-hmm. infected, right? Because mm-hmm. that can maybe help tell us about right. how sure. can we inoculate them? How can we fix this problem? Mm-hmm. And so they were considering, hey, what if we send a command that basically just says, hey, gener- gather a little information about yourself and send it back. Right. Yeah, yeah. Should they do that? Mm-hmm. So I, I, I would I say hope. that's that's erring on the side of no, because now you're yeah. identifying not only individual computers, but potentially the people that mm-hmm. work mm-hmm. those computers. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah, and you're collecting this without their consent. There's literally right, I mean, right. no way right. to so, so you're get right. incre- increasing human vulnerability. Right. There. So yes. where cybersecurity touches human users, mm-hmm. right? Because there are necessarily mm. human users in the cyber in the cyber system, mm-hmm. yes. right? At those points, maybe those are the points where you come into 
understanding, you know, forming an understanding of how research ethics should be constructed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's that? a very tricky. So at the end of the day, they decided not to. Right. The okay. reason Good. was Go they, they, they said, hey, we don't know what's going to happen. You know, we can't guarantee that there's not some... Uh, heart monitoring system that's compromised that is talking yeah. to us and then we tell yeah. it to run some command but we you can't possibly test whatever you're going to do right. across all possible systems yeah and so what if that causes that to crash yeah, right, somebody right. Dies. Yeah. yeah so one thing that that raises mm-hmm. is for by the way you describe it groups like this are trying to sort of come up with one-off solutions to mm-hmm. the ethical questions each time yes. there isn't a framework yes mm-hmm. so so not only is that incredibly time consuming but it actually potentially unnecessarily stops or stymies really important research mm-hmm. because yeah. you don't have a framework within you which you're working. That's which right. then comes back to the question of what should this framework look like? Exactly. I and that's something that I don't know, right? right. How, you know, yeah. what is are there commonalities that we can abstract from mm-hmm. the the vulnerability scanning versus this right. botnet mm-hmm. takeover? And the other thing is, you know, how how does that that maybe it handles the current ones, but what about the next weird, unique situation. So that's, that's right, put another right. spin on it. One of the things that they considered, and even with the FBI they considered, was, hey, we can send a command to these systems to tell it to get rid of this botnet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So effectively take down this entire massive botnet that was sending out millions and millions of spam emails. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, and do you interfere? Do you yeah, interfere? yeah, exactly. Yes. At that point, right? And then at that point, you're talking about okay, this isn't just statistics, uh, statistics data, which is important for research. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now you're talking about an, a tangible benefit, not only mm-hmm. for the people whose information and computers this is on, but for all of us receiving spam and right, yeah. and um, all the malicious things these that's websites that's are right. doing. So apart from the fact that if you were to do that, you then become responsible for any adverse consequences. Exactly. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. And so that's why they did not do it. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, but so they struggled with that question. Yes. Um, what do we do? Yeah. yeah. And it, I don't remember the details, but I know there have been other botnet takeovers mm-hmm. by the government, and they have done that. And they right. have oh, right. killed okay. and wiped the botnet, and yeah. they decided that it was fine. But and though, but it's one thing if your purpose is to actually take out a botnet as opposed to research. Research, yeah. yes, and that's yeah. where the trickiness I think comes exactly. in. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, it was it was a very interesting time to be in the lab and hearing all of this go on. Yes. And yeah. the papers incredibly interesting. They got a lot of really good data. I'm sure. Um, but yeah, it brought up very interesting ethical questions that I think still aren't answered that was my next question is since that happened you know a few probably several years Mm -hmm. ago now what has transpired in the field yeah so there have been other studies but i i don't know of anybody who's saying hey this is an ethical framework that we should be doing right right conducting this research and i think that would be something that would be incredibly interesting yeah of course and this ties in very closely with developments within ai Mm -hmm. technologies whether you're looking at natural language processing machine learning or whatever because now we're just at the cusp of this whole cyberspace exploding in terms of capabilities Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. not only that it gets back to your point of the human interface. Yeah. We're building incredibly sophisticated systems that have direct human consequences Absolutely. in how they operate. Absolutely. Exactly. And we need, uh, you know, we the reason that we have ethical frameworks for doing research and for doing practice in all of mm-hmm. these spaces, right, um, is for good reasons. You know, centuries, uh, 
I would say millennia, but really centuries of doing organized research and practice with some really gnarly, you know, sequelae mm-hmm. um, in in the absence of ethical practice and research frameworks. And so it follows, I think, that these emerging spaces merit an anticipatorily, you know, very, sort of focused very much framework. So. And, and so I'm immediately going through my mind is where you get this interface between physical systems and, and cyber systems. Mm-hmm. So going back to um, autonomous vehicles, right. this is picking up on earlier conversations. So what happens now if you try and sort of do a bit of research where you're pinging Teslas that are driving themselves along the roads and yeah. some of those pings alter the way that that car is driving itself yep. exactly. or just interrupted for long enough for That's something right. bad to happen. That's there right. are very real consequences. Yeah, we have... Uh, <laughs> We, at Santa Barbara, I can't remember who was doing it, but somebody was trying to do an internal study of the Santa Barbara network, and so they were kind of scanning internally, um, essentially knocking on doors, just seeing what was out there. Okay. And we got a lot of angry emails from IT because, mm-hmm. not that we were doing this, but because when we were doing this against a printer, it started printing out random gibberish. <laughs> right. Oh, and so, yeah, we had to blacklist these printers so we uh-huh. wouldn't actually scan them. Right. And that was even something that we had permission to do in the first place, sure. right, yes. to scan the network. But yeah, you have these unintended physical consequences that, from yep. what you're doing in the cyber that, realm. That, that's right. So, so you mentioned the, the medical monitors. Um, if you've got internet-connected um, pacemakers, mm-hmm. whatever, mm-hmm. things become enormously more complex when you've got things connected to the net. Yes. The internet of things. And it becomes even more It's scary. a tangly space. Yes. yes. <laughs> well, as usual, we have barely scratched the surface of this problem. I, I would love to come back and actually explore this more because I think this is a really important Important area that, as you say, we're just scratching the surface. Yeah, I think Agreed. that would be interesting. So please come back. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm always here. Um, All right, thanks, guys. Great, thanks. thanks. For more where that came from, including our undergraduate and graduate programs, check out the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at sfis.asu.edu. Future Out Loud is produced with the support of the School for the Future of Innovation in Society and the Risk Innovation Lab at Arizona State University. Mark Van Hare created our music. Ana Lopez is our production assistant. Please subscribe to Future Out Loud on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please tell your friends and let us know what you think on Facebook and Twitter at Future Out Loud.